this drasha will lay out um, what is probably, I, I think hands down, the most important piece of Jewish political thought, which if we get to it actually figures um, in an exchange uh, in, the 19, in 1938 between Rav Herzog, uh, then, the chief, um, then the chief rabbi, uh, Ashkenazi rabbi of Palestine, um, and his teacher, uh, the Achiezer, about the prospects of, of political Zionism. So I want to start off here. I'm going to take the lead um, reading. Um, okay, where can it be found, by the way? Where, where can you, it's not in Kiddush Haran, right? No, Drashot Haran. So um, you can find it in the Barilan Project. Uh, the standard edition is the Mossad Harav Cook uh, edition, um, which I, I can't vouch for its accuracy, um, but it's probably decent um, as these things go. There are many um, kind of suggested emendations uh, in the digitized version of the text. I found some emendations that I would suggest myself. Um, that are here. So um, I can't speak much to the textual history though. So I want to start off here and name kind of how much is going on in just the very first sentence. And the background I want to give the kind of the, the straw man of this shiur is the idea that a, a Torah true political philosophy is a theocracy. What I mean by that is that Judaism understands the purpose of a government in general an ideal government, and it's certainly a Jewish government in particular, to be the furthering and enforcement of Torah law. Right? The Torah is the blueprint of what human society should look like, and a Jewish sovereign should be using all of the power that they have to um, create uh, Torah facts on the ground and to further the, kind of the, the world as it is described from the Torah. And I want to show you how the first sentence totally breaks that open, um, and the run kind of follows in that direction. Um, and, and then we'll do something kind of fascinating and I think critical in the second half. So here we go. I'll, I'll read this in English here. Um, this, parts of this essay also appear in that volume, The Jewish Political Tradition, um, which is what this translation is based off of. So it is known, Yadua, that the human species needs judges to advocate, to adjudicate among individuals, for otherwise, quote, men would eat each other alive and humanity would be destroyed. Full stop. Okay. The statement here is human beings are the kind of beings that need power structures and need authority to make life livable with one another. Um, I don't know if anyone here has read H.L.A. Hart's The Concept of Law. He has this little essay at the back where he tries to imagine a kind of being that wouldn't need these things. Like imagine we had very hard shells that we couldn't, such that we couldn't hurt one another. Or we were incapable of accruing property such that we couldn't steal it from each other. He says you could imagine a type of being that wouldn't really need law and wouldn't really need systems of justice because they wouldn't be capable of hurting each other. Or even types of beings that wouldn't be so inclined to hurt uh, and take advantage of one another. Um, I think a lot of the debate about will AI destroy us turns on the question of will AI be as nasty as we are. Um, that, but that's not us. Human beings, as just a kind of a statement of anthropology, anthropological first principles, require um, systems of order um, to be to, that they create and impose on themselves in order to be able to survive. Now, this is important kind of method. I think it's true. He quotes a mission here, but the, that's not clearly the, the source of the authority of the statement. This is a statement that the need for a system of justice has, uh, this is clear, nothing in particular to do with the Torah. Right? It, this, is, this is from Ma'asebreshit, right? Um, 
And look at this. The next sentence he's going to say is more clearly. Every nation needs some sort of political organization. Israel, like any other nation, needs this as well. Right? There's nothing special about the Jews up to this point. And so the way, I want to just make sure this is clear, the thing that people need is totally universal. It's by nature of who we are. And because of that, the Ran doesn't need to cite any Torah authority for this fact. We all know this, because this is something we all need. Right? There's nothing particularly Jewish about this. Which means that when we approach the question of how the Torah imagines a government, we have to approach it from the perspective that human beings need governments. And that's going to become very significant, right? This is not primarily a Jewish question of how to govern. This is primarily a human question of how to govern. Okay? Okay. And, and Jews need governments too. We need, and we need governments to do the same kinds of things that non-Jews need their governments to do. Okay. The Jewish people have an additional need, which is supporting the Torah's laws. God, may God be blessed, set these two issues apart, delegating them each to a separate agency. So just to be clear here, there are two different kinds of needs, and this is already starting to get interesting. One is the human need for government. One is the Jewish need to make the Torah a part of our lived communal life. And according to the Ran, those two different needs are fulfilled by different institutions. Now let's watch him do that. God, number one here, these are the two institutions. God commanded that judges be appointed to judge according to the truly just law. Say a little bit about what he means by that. As it is written, and they shall judge the people by just law. Right? They are appointed to judge the people according to the law that was itself truly just, and their jurisdiction is not to exceed that. These are shoftim, right? The application of Torah law has a bounded range. Torah here does not cover every aspect of life, right? This is not a kind of like a Martin Buber picture of Hasidut, that the Torah should be how you do everything in a, in a direct legislative way. We'll see later. There's a bounded um, realm to the, what you, know, whether it's, you imagine is a posek, a dayan, um, can uh, speak on. They have limited jurisdiction. And number two, look at this, but since political order cannot be fully established by these means alone, God provided further for its establishment, the political order's establishment, by commanding the appointment of a sovereign. I.e., let me say it again, political order cannot be fully established by these means alone. If all we had were Dayanim applying Torah law, we would not have a functioning society. That is a strong statement that Ron has made. It might raise some eyebrows. We're going to see him defend that in a minute with a strong example. And he says, there, so therefore the creation of a functioning polity is the task of a different political entity, which is the sovereign. I'm being very careful here to translate Melech as sovereign and not king. And the reason for that is because when we say king, we think about all the things that make kings different than our government. They're hereditary, they have absolute power, etc. None of those things are important to the Ran's account. What's important is their sovereignty, their executive authority, their responsibility for the welfare of the polity. And so I want to not distract ourselves with those things. Interestingly, there's a, a kind of a group of rabbis who are exiled from Spain, go to live in Italian city-states, which are kind of small-scale democracies, and they write about, based on their experiences, how it must be the case when the Torah said Melech, it meant democracy and not king. Because having lived under absolute monarchs and democracies, democracies are so demonstrably superior that that must be what the Torah meant when it said Melech. 
<laughs> it's like an amazing moment of kind of free translation, but maybe correct translation. Um, so just to be clear, the Ron has started, he's suggested, and I just want to be really clear here, the Torah does not imagine that the way that it wants a society to build is just like applying parashat mishpatim. It's just applying laws of four times damages, five times damages, etc. That is, he's saying that's the Torah's picture is that there is a limited jurisdiction to the Torah's rules, and there is another body appointed by the Torah that acts according to a different set of rules and a different set of goals. Like, thoughts, questions, observations so far here. We've covered a lot of ground. Anything unclear? Yes. So, um, when he describes the institutions, he talks about the judges uh, judging Mishpat Tzedek, where is there, unless it's in the ellipses, where is Lahamid Kukeha Torah? Uh, I said that is um, supporting the Torah's laws. Right, what's, the, what's that mean though? Are you saying he doesn't get from the Psukim to there? Because no, what you have is number one, right, talks about yes. truly just law. I'm not saying, I mean, I'm not saying Chukei Torah in the larger sense as part of his scheme. Yeah, how he gets to, he seems to think that there's some kind of benefit to say punishing Shabbat desecrators, even if it's not intrinsically just, it has a kind of a social benefit, which he's not mainly focused on in this essay. He mainly is going to focus on, as we'll see, certain, um, the very high unreachable bar that's set for criminal prosecution Mm -hmm. in socially dangerous crimes. It's a great okay. challenge. Yeah, I, um, what's a little troubling to me about this formulation is that um, it almost makes it look like the what Chukei Torah can apply to a government are kind of arbitrary. Like Torah happens to have laws about types of damages and slaves and yep. holidays, but oh, it gets left out, um, you know, explaining how a king functions or how a sovereign functions. Great. So, yes, yeah, so that's going to be what we're going to start to fill in now. He's going to give an example of why this is acute. Um, and also the point that, well, it seems like many of the Torah's laws are about having good social functioning is a little bit difficult for him, right? What are those about? For him, like Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, the paradigm of what the Torah is about is korbanot, is sacrifices. That's the center. Everything else is kind of secondary. You want to know what religion is, what the Torah is about, what it means, really just think about sacrifices, right? Just like a fascinating position to take. Um, it's not about, you know, anything this worldly, really. Um, okay, so now let's get to his example of, of how he justifies this. Okay, we may clarify this, please do. In the fifth chapter of Sanhedrin, here we have a variety. Our rabbis taught. So the case here, right, is some witnesses show up, people show up at the Beit and they say, we witnessed a murder. And now the witnesses have to prove that the murderer um, understood the fact that she, on committing the murder, was going to receive the death penalty. Okay? Here we go. Did you warn him? I.e., did you, I say him here. Did you say to this person as they were pointing the gun, you, may, you know the Torah prohibit, prohibits committing murder. This is obviously extremely likely what you do when you see someone pointing a gun at someone else is you tap them on the shoulder and say, excuse me, do you know that it says lo right? Just wanted to make sure. That's not what you do. Um, but did you do that? Okay, but now, okay. Then, did he confirm the warning? The person said, yes, I am aware that what I'm about to do is prohibited. Then, did he accept liability for his death? He has to say, yes, and I understand that what I'm about to do will get me killed. And then, did he commit the murder immediately? Because consent is something that expires if it was more than about three seconds. Maybe he changed his mind. I don't want to die. 
And so the, the consent that you've extracted from the murderer um, is only valid for a, a very short period of time. It's like when you try to book an airline ticket and says, sorry, your session has expired. Um, okay. So this, and I, uh, um, I just want to be clear. So this, I, I, I think I can say obviously, is totally preposterous as a criminal code. The mission is already aware of this, by the way, and creates structures for people who consistently don't nod their heads or say yes when the witnesses say, do you know, is, is going to get you the death penalty as a way of getting around the death penalty. Okay. There can be, n okay, I want to take a step back now and introduce an anachronistic piece of uh, political philosophy that I find to be extremely helpful here. Um, according to Kantian ethics, it's very difficult to come to a theory of punishment. What I mean by that is one of the formulations of the categorical imperative, a la Kant, is that you can only ever treat someone else as an ends in of themselves and not as a means to another end. And this is a problem for the case of punishment. <laughs> Because you therefore cannot, say, put someone in jail or punish them in other ways as a deterrent to other potential criminals because that is treating them as a means to an end. Right? You can only ever treat them as an ends in of themselves, do things for them and to them that are good for them, in which case what you're doing isn't really punishment. Right? This is actually like a major problem. Um, maybe it's a, a strong critique that Kant offers and we should never have punishment. We should have you know, other kinds of justice systems. What the run is saying, I think, is actually a kind of Kantian move, that in what he calls in the next sentence here, there can be no doubt that this is required by just law. For why should a man be put to death unless he was aware that he was committing a capital offense and nevertheless transgress? Therefore, it is requisite that he confirm and accept a warning along with the other requirements mentioned there. This is the law intrinsically and truly just that is entrusted to our judges. So what the run is saying, just to be clear, right, is if you think that people only deserve things they know that they're contracting to and that they understand, and you need proof of that, you need to walk into court and say, yeah, this person understood they were committing murder, and that was wrong, and they were going to get the death penalty. Otherwise, they, ignorance is a defense. That is on this kind of Kantian picture, people should only get what they deserve has a strong argument for it if the moral value of the murderer is the only thing that can come into consideration and nothing else can trump that. That's the Ron's picture here. The Torah's picture of criminal jurisprudence is such that no kind of pragmatic concerns like, well, everyone will get away with it. Well, everyone will get away with it doesn't mean you can kill this person. This person's life is infinitely valuable. Just because of some social scientific thing that you'll be able to tell me there'll be 2.3 murders, da, da, doesn't mean you can take it out on this person, right? You can't purchase a lower crime rate society-wide at the expense of killing them when they don't deserve it. That's the, the force of the Ron's picture that the Torah's law here is intrinsically just and is completely unworkable for a government. Does that make sense? That's, that's what he's trying to get you to feel here. However, as he's going to say now, punishing criminals in this way alone would completely undermine political order. Undermine is probably too soft a word. Probably destroy is better. Murderers would multiply having no fear of punishment. That is why God ordered the appointment of a sovereign for the sake of civilization. The sovereign may impose a sentence as he deems necessary for political association even when no warning has been given. So to be clear here, the Torah, all the things the Torah says, you need two witnesses, you need warning, hatra, etc., that applies to judges applying the halakha to people. 
The Torah also says that there is a sovereign who is not constrained by any of that. The sovereign is, does not have to follow the Torah's laws and it doesn't have the same goals. The sovereign's goals are not, you cannot tread on the rights and the dignity of any individual. The sovereign is thinking about the welfare of society as a whole. And sometimes that will, in a kind of realpolitik way, mean this person, I don't have perfect evidence that they themselves understood what, they're committed, what they've committed and deserve this crime. However, for the good of society and those 2.3 people who the sociologists tell me will die if this person isn't killed, I, they must get the death penalty. That's the Ron's position up till now. Questions? Things that weren't clear. Yes, and tell your name. Saul. Saul. Doesn't that turn Sanhedrin on its head in the sense that he's not quoting from the Chumash, he's quoting from Sanhedrin, and the argument there is if there is a court that has the ability to say, give the death penalty, this is the standard where there is sovereignty that has to be followed. And that's a specific message to the court and to that kind of society. So, so the irony there is, right, so the Talmud talks about when you have sovereignty and you have a court, even though they don't have sovereignty and they don't have a court, and then you use it centuries later to show that that's actual Torah law, or that we now need another thing called sovereignty. Right. And, Right, so interestingly, one in, I mean, there are a lot of interesting angles where you're saying one fascinating piece is, the, again and again in the Bavli in particular, I think this is just in the Bavli, rabbis take this kind of extrajudicial power for themselves, right? Right? The person didn't deserve this, but an example needed to be made. These kind of political exigencies actually are, are enacted by rabbis. A couple of dissertations have been written about this recently. The picture here, just to be clear, is totally fascinating. He's trying to say the Torah, when read as a text, does not give you the Torah's picture of how a society should function. The Torah is giving you a picture of how one institution in society should function, not how society should function. Um, now he's going to say this in, the, in what will probably like raise some eyebrows in a, a stronger way in the next paragraph here. So the purposes of the judges and the Sanhedrin, by contrast, in contrast to the sovereign, is to judge the people in accordance with the true and intrinsically just law, which will affect the cleaving of the divine onto us whether or not the ordering of the multitude's affairs has been perfected. This is the Inyan Elohi, which again goes back to Rabbi Yehuda HaLevi, right? that there is something of kind of ultimate religious import to the application and the thinking through of Torah law. Here, although it's almost an academic exercise, um, even though that does not yield social benefits that are measurable. This is why, and watch this, this is unbelievable. This is why some of the laws and procedures of the nations the Goyim, may be more effective in enhancing political order than some of the Torah's laws. Right? He just out and out says it. Right? There are actually laws, if you look at criminal law, British common law, if you look at the Napoleonic Code, if you look at Hammurabi, it says you will at some point find things that will produce a better society than the Torah. So like, you don't need to freak out about that. You don't need to lie about it. You don't need to apologize for it. You don't need to do this to say why they're bad and we are good. That's not how the story goes. There are things when judged on the effects and the kind of society they make that will lead to better results than the Torah. This, however, does not leave us deficient since any deficiency regarding political order was corrected by the law of the sovereign. 
this escape clause. So I want to say a few things here to lay this out. The first is that, um, where do I want to say these in? First, as an aside, is this actually might be the Rambam's position. It probably is. In fact, the Or Sameach argues this, that the Rambam lays out pretty clearly in Hilchot Melachim that in certain cases where there's only one witness, where there's uh, certain complicated things about an accidental murder, etc., the Jewish sovereign is supposed to apply the same laws that a non-Jewish court is supposed to apply. Um, and the Orsamech and others point out that he seems to, the Rambam seems to hold a position like this. That's just the first thing as a piece of intellectual history. Yes? I don't, I'm missing something. Then what is the purpose? Is it kind of formalistic purpose? If it's not going to work in society, is it a formalistic, which seems to be suggested in a way by this business of uh, you have to be told with a warning, you have to be told that you're violating a divine law, and then you may be punished. So what is the purpose of that? Yeah, so it's this thing which does not... It's, exactly. And what's your name? Ron. Ron. So the question is very strong. The purpose... So it is, it is strongly platonic. I'm glad you're picking up on that. I would say the purpose here... First of all, it is not a purpose that is describable in universal human terms. Right? It is a divine cleaving. And in that sense, this is why sacrifice, again, magic. What's the purpose of sacrifice? We all got together. It's like a slaughterhouse, right? It's like, what, but no one's eating the meat, or only a few people are eating the meat in a kind of inefficient way, whatever it is. Um, <laughs> after recall, five tons of it, whatever. Um, the, what, is the, what is the purpose? It seems to be actually there's something about the procedure of the Sanhedrin adjudicating this that is of a, it's a, a ritual, almost, I would call it, right? What's the purpose of tefillah? Right? There's a sense that something occurs in that space which is not necessarily intelligible to people or um, experientially meaningful unless you share a set of commitments. Um, that's a, it's a, a fascinating thing. So as a, just in terms of a second piece of intellectual history here, is a fascinating thing happens. All these Haredi Achronim in the 20th century basically commenting, take this line of the Rans to talk about all the things they think are bad about the Torah. Right, the Arishon has said that there are certain things in the Torah which are less effective than the nation's laws. What could he have meant? Well, I think he meant this and this. I think he meant that. You know, a thief only has to pay back double. Well, if he knows he's going to get caught less than fifty percent of the time, it's, he should just keep stealing because there's no lashes and there's no prison. Right? Maybe that's a bad thing the Torah has. So it's like fascinating window that the Ran opens up here. And the last thing I want to say, I think the sharpest moment here, way to describe this is the Torah does not lay out the engineering principles for synagogues. Torah may have certain rules about how synagogues are built. You know, it faces a certain way, it has windows, etc. It doesn't tell you how many structural columns you need, or where they need to be placed, or what material they need to be built out of. Right? Those are things that human beings know. Yadua. Right? There's a, there's a science here. And they're not any different for synagogues than any other building. There's no Jewish engineering. The run thinks that that's true of how governments work also. These are facts about how human beings are. And the Jewish government better wise up to those, just like you hope your synagogue architects wised up to those, rather than using some special engineering they learned from, like, reading Solomon's Temple. How do we know the synagogue? Well, I read this thing in Yechezkel, and I put it together with, you know, Malachi, and that showed me that you actually don't need a column here. Right? Like, you would, you would run. You would be like, I want my, my building assessment to be a lot higher than $200 a year if we've got to fix this problem, right? You would, like, that wouldn't get off the ground. We can say this you know, about medicine, etc. We don't read the Torah for these kinds of things. The run is saying that's true of statecraft also. 
And this incidentally becomes Rabbi Chaim Ozer Grodzinski in 1938 arguing against his student Rav Herzog who's trying to set up a Jewish national government based on Torah laws. Rav Herzog says, that's a category mistake. The Jewish picture of a government is a government, period. Jewish picture of good government is good government. You will not create anything better than what the British have created. It's a category error. No, there, it may be that it'll be nice to be a Jew. You'll be an Eretz Yisrael, and da, 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 da. but like, don't think that Judaism has a picture of a government. It's an, a breathtaking claim. It's a very Galuti claim, perhaps, right? A kind of an, a diasporic claim. Judaism works on local levels, um, but it does not lay out a governmental vision on the on the level of a society. Yeah. So I'm disturbed, and I always have been deeply disturbed by this picture because you are. It, it seems to me that you're making the Sanhedrin, and it relates back, I think, to what Ron was asking, so irrelevant, apparently, in the actual world, in terms of the consequences of what it has to say, that you're now deferring to a king who it seems to be unconstrained. Now, you mentioned the Rambam, that the Rambam said should follow the laws of the Gentiles, which is in a way, to me, a very sad statement. Yes. I mean, yes. So, so it's a I see this as an incredibly dangerous yes. system. Yes, it's very deflationary. I want to say, I guess, just two things about that. The first is, American law has something similar, which is habeas corpus and its suspension. Right? The idea that actually individuals start off with an incredibly thick bundle of rights that the government can't get around, right? It's extremely difficult to prosecute someone. That's why 95% of criminal prosecutions end in pleas. Right? Only a tiny fraction go to, go to trial. And in certain exceptional moments, the government can suspend habeas corpus and strip you of those rights because the society as a whole needs it. It's actually a very parallel kind of construction. Um, the second thing is, I think, it, I, I, I agree with the deflationary worry. I want to point out, there is no small industry of people we actually think of as deeply important in our society whose job it is to write about and predict and critique the legal machinations of our government. You might call them law professors. You might call them political commentators. You might call them philosophers. Right? The idea that you're not actually wielding the institutes of the levers of power doesn't mean you aren't extremely important in terms of thinking about the moral progress of society, the religious progress of society, it's, it's even social cohesion, even if you're not the one who com you know, commands the bailiff to let someone go or imprison them. Yes? Um, uh, this is sort of, sort of on a, a tangent, but I think it, in a way it's kind of relevant. There was a similar development in English law in the 16th or 17th century, I'm not exactly sure, I'm not a legal scholar, but there's something called ec the law of equity. And the, the English common law was administered by the judges, and they had their own rules, and people were not always happy with the way the common law was working out. So there were the equity yes. courts, which were organized under the chancellor of the exchequer or something like that. And when they couldn't get the, when they were not happy with the outcome they were getting from the common law courts, they were going to the courts of equity. Right. At a certain point, the system sort of merged. Right. But there was this 
uh, resort to a different uh, Beautiful. And Rav Herzog, who's, his first job was as the rabbi of first Ireland and then independent in Northern Ireland, um, was very familiar with that and re- explicitly rejects that for no particularly good reason as a picture of his Israeli jurisprudence. And secondly, uh, Gerald Blitzstein has a very nice argument pointing at, article pointing out that that actually happens in basically like the 700s, 800s in most, like extensively throughout the caliphate and basically everywhere um, where uh, people begin to realize pretty quickly that Sharia law doesn't work in the same ways that, to- in, not the same ways, but in kind of structurally parallel ways, so ways Torah law doesn't work, and you get these two pl- legal planes. So it'd be interesting to think in a comparative law way how maybe this is actually the way most legal systems work and not just some kind of exception. So now I want to move past the, that deflationary moment of like, well, I don't know, we'll just like ask the economists and sociologists what to do and we'll write laws that way, you know, and we forget it's just Sanhedrin. Why are we learning Baba Kama? Why are we learning Baba Metzia, right? What are we doing here? Is it just an intellectual exercise? So the run does something, I think, just extremely moving here, and this is what Avi really drew my attention to. Okay. This is a little bit long, further on in the essay. Two passages here which we're going to look at, which are similar in some ways and different in important ways. The difference between a judge and sovereign is that the judge is more tightly controlled by the Torah's laws than is the sovereign, right? Judge has to kind of call, this is a certain picture of how judges work, call balls and strikes, interpret the laws, it applies in a case, the sovereign has very wide discretionary power. And because of this, I want to be clear, because the sovereign is not tightly controlled by the Torah, the Torah warned the sovereign, commanding him to have a Torah scroll that he carries with him. As it says, when he is seated on his royal throne, he shall have a copy of this teaching written for him. Let it remain with him and let him read in it all his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God, to observe faithfully every word of this Torah as well as these laws, since he will not act haughtily towards his fellows or deviate from the Torah to the right or to the left. This means that since the sovereign is aware that he is not as tightly controlled by the Torah's laws as is a judge, he requires a severe warning not to deviate from the Torah's teaching or act haughtily towards his fellows due to the great power that God, may God be blessed, has given him. Don't turn the page yet. We'll get to that other one in a second. But I want to point out here what's amazing. The Ron has done something that I find both like intellectually fascinating and then religiously like very interesting, which I want to explore with you. The first is, you might think, okay, let's line them up. Judge has to directly apply the Torah, sovereign uh, doing something like engineering on a civil level, right? The way they have to, like, I don't know, tightly read, like, you know, contemporary political theory journals. Okay, which one of them needs a Torah really badly? The judge. They're the one who's, like, applying the Torah day in and day out. And the Ran says, and this is what's so amazing, the sovereign needs the Torah, not despite the fact that he is not applying it in a legalistic one-to-one way to the world, but because of the fact that he is not applying it in a legalistic one-to-one way to the world. It is because of the broad scope of his powers and the fundamentally limited ability of any um, legal system to address the complex political questions that he faces, that he needs to be constantly, intimately present with the Torah in a bodily way and in a literary way and in an intellectual and a spiritual way. So the picture here I just want to first give is what the way he, the Ron describes it, right? So that why he not deviate from the Torah's teaching or act haughtily towards his fellows due to the great power that God, may God be blessed, has given him. 
the sovereign's life is supposed to be shaped by the Torah no less than the judges but in a, the Torah acts on him in a different way right? the judges apply the Torah as a set of procedures as a set of precedents as a set of rules to follow the sovereign must have her character shaped by the Torah Right, the Torah functions not in a legal or in a prescriptive way. The Torah functions in an educational way, in a character-developing way. And that, because the, since the sovereign is basically unconstrained by laws, their character will be on display. Um, it's hard not to think about our current politics. Um, will be on display in the most powerful ways, and it, it's the Torah actually functions in these different institutions in equally vital but different ways. And I just want to give an, a nod here. I don't think this is cited by the contemporary Israeli philosopher Avinam Rosenak, who has written a, a fascinating series of articles where he argues essentially people assume that halakha is law and that poskim and dayanim are judges. He thinks that that's sociologically more or less untrue. Right? The judge has never met the people before her generally is separated by an institutional barrier, goes home after the case is tried, and leaves others to carry out the orders. The Dayan, the Poseik, historically lived intimately with their community, is the one giving the drashot on Shabbat, is the one hexering the chickens, is the one teaching the kids Chumash, and they see their life and the function of their role in the community, including their Psach Halakha, including their Dayanu, primarily as an educational one. And one of the things Rosenak extracts from this is that maybe the philosophical background we should bring to the study of halakha is not philosophy of law and not philosophy of government, but philosophy of education. Um, which is also a nod to his father, Michael Rosenak, of blessed memory, who was a philosopher of education. Um, it's a nice anti-Edipal moment. Um, <laughs> um, um, so the, the picture here, and I think that this is what Rosenak is getting at, right? There is a, a kind of a legal venue of the Torah, and that does not exhaust the ways it can act in our lives. And that does not exhaust the influence it should have on us, right? Now that's, and which is fascinating here, this is to say that the Torah may not have anything direct to say about, I don't know, a question of like how high the highest tax bracket should be or what your standard of evidence should be for criminal cases if you don't take the Torah as one of two witnesses, right, and hatra, and warning. The Torah may not explicitly answer that question at this point. That's not to say that as someone who spent their life studying Torah and devoted to it and living with it won't come to different and perhaps even better answers to those questions than someone who hasn't. Yeah, David. Okay, the, in the language of the Ron, he seems to be pointing to... Um, Taking exceptions to uh, allowing the, uh, the sovereign to take exception to what would seem to be Torah law um, under principles of that are either uh, um, which are right, these kind of moments of break the right. local law to save but, the larger. Right, but in both cases, both of those cases, it seems to be a uh, a temporary, either immediately temporary or, or short-term right. as opposed to a more fundamental, right. uh, certainly not fundamental to capital F, but a more longer-term. That's right. So, so, so it, would, it, it would not seem to encompass the idea that 
um, that uh, the shigra has changed, that the perception of humanity has changed, and that uh, uh, and, and that the mamzer shouldn't be treated as a mamzer, that, uh, that the level uh, of issues of gender and sexuality, right. which seem to be changed, it would not, these things would not seem to fall under the categories that the, that the, that the, um, the melech, in this case, uh, would, would be taken into account. Right, so I would say two things. First of all, it may be the, melech, the sovereign would take those into account and other things, but another way of saying is the sovereign does not need to fall back on the kinds of arguments you just made, saying, at, at this stage at least, the sovereign does not have to say, and this we'll see a different valence in the next paragraph, which we'll wrap up with, but at this stage, the sovereign can actually say, and I want this to be clear, this, what I'm about to do, will actually lead to a diminished fulfillment of Torah law, but that's not my job, right? My job is for, like, you know, kids to be able to walk out on the street and get on their school bus without having to worry about unlicensed drivers and people it's kidnapping the them, etc. What do you say? Is the defense of society. society, right? It's actually a, a secularized picture of the good in that sense, um, and that is the the responsibility of the of the sovereign. Um, you know, I'll just use an, a, a contemporary example: um, a pharmacist whose religious beliefs uh, prohibit certain forms of, like, the morning-after pill, right? That person, is their per that person acting as a pharmacist to further their picture of the religious world or to enact a certain picture of how a society can function well, right? They actually may lead to different outcomes depending on how they conceive of their role, and you may imagine different kinds of legal protections um, or requirements on them in those cases. But now I want to give, we're going to close with a different picture of the run, which I think is, stands in important tension to what we just saw. So it'll, st it'll start off sounding similar, but at the end it'll sound much more like what David just raised. Because the sovereign's power is so great, and since he is not tightly controlled by the Torah's laws like the judge, any shortcomings in his reverence for God will lead him to exercise his power beyond what is required for the general welfare, right? This is the problem now. Is it's very easy for the government to say, well, I need to do this for general welfare, and I need to take away that freedom for general welfare, etc., etc. And the only real check on that is the sovereign's character. Right? He's acknowledging that there is not a, not a system of checks and balances here, and even if there is, it's only as good as the people enforcing them. So, he, the sovereign, is commanded to have a Torah with him at all times to observe faithfully every word of this Torah as well as these laws. This means, and now watch what he's going to describe here as the sovereign's job, because it's different. The Torah as a whole, if he abrogates a mitzvah because of an emergency, starting to sound temporary, his intent must be not to, be, to violate the Torah at all and not to free himself from the reverence due heaven in any way. Rather, his intent must be to preserve all of the words of the Torah, such that whenever he adds or subtracts something, it is so that the Torah's laws will be better heeded overall. Break one Shabbat to save many. For example, if the sovereign executes a murderer who lacked witnesses or warning, coming back full circle, his intent must not be to demonstrate his control to the people over whom he rules. I can do whatever I want, head, you know, put the heads on London Bridge, right, London Tower. Rather, his intention must be so that the commandment, do not murder, will be fulfilled and not violated. So this here is a, a fascinating shift. Here, the Ran is breaking apart almost a means ends within the Torah. The Torah has rules, do not murder, kind of larger level goals, and then it has procedures for how to get there, how to prosecute murderers. And the, unlike the judges who have to follow those procedures, the sovereign can say these procedures are not getting us to those goals. Right? And so I'm going to abrogate them. But this is very different here because now the Torah actually does sketch a picture of the world that we want, 
or that God wants, that we are commanded to pursue, but it might not give us the best ways of getting there all the time. Right? It might be getting in its own way. And it's the sovereign's job not to, con- not to allow us to be gotten in the way of by these procedures, right? To not confuse, as Dr. Steinberg was saying, means and ends, right? To say, wait, the Torah is saying, don't, we have, the sovereign takes responsibility, let me say it this way, not just for her own fulfillment of do not murder, but for everyone's fulfillment of do not murder. And so the sovereign may have to do things that are against Torah law in order that the society as a whole fulfill do not murder to the greatest possible extent. And so this is a not, now not a deflationary picture at all. We have two different kinds of functions of the Torah in this sovereign's life. One is their character. Right? We know that you know, people have very different narratives about what a polity is like, different pictures of, you know, <laughs> what does it mean that some people are driving Lexuses and some people like, can't find rooms in homeless shelters? Some people think that's a crisis, some people don't. Right? We would hope that a Torah-educated sovereign would have one of those views. Um, and secondly, the sovereign is supposed to kind of take the Torah as a whole and develop a picture, which will intrinsically be a somewhat idiosyncratic personal picture of the kind of world the Torah depicts, and will understand that, that all the pieces of the Torah may not be able to be held together, and we may have to jettison some of them, and the decision of which ones to jettison should be guided not, again, by this legislative rules, 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 or ranking the Rabbanans, Doraitas, etc., Ases, Lotases, Kumba, you know, whatever. It's by uh, the educational function of the way this, the to- traveling through life with this Torah that she's written has shaped her as a person, right, that she's kind of identified with it. We're going to break now. Um, I just want to say that I think that this picture of studying and the, you know, the tradition of someone who devoted many hours of his life to this text and, and Jewish people like coming together as Jews and Americans to try to find our way through in the kind of inherently but especially now murky future um, is one of the things that gives me the greatest hope um, in, in what we might find and create together. Yashukoa.